Macworld Podcast, number 40, May 26th, 2006. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Saruz Faravar. Today is the big 4-0 of the Macworld Podcast. We've done 39 up till now. And there isn't a better way to celebrate the 40th Macworld podcast with some listener comments and some interviews from our own Macworld staffers to give you all the latest news uh, involving Apple Computer and, of course, my take on the new MacBook. Um, we've got a lot of stuff to pack in this one show, so I'm going to try and keep all of this brief. First, we're going to be having a new format just for this show. We're going to have, after my intro, we're going to hear from... Senior editor Dan Frakes talking about the new deal between Nike and Apple Computer uh, that involves a new gadget that allows you to connect your running shoes to your iPod Nano. Then we're going to slip into some comments, and you'll hear from uh, some various folks from around the world. Then we're going to cut back to another interview, another announcement this week. Uh, Quark announced the latest version of Quark Express 7, the latest in their desktop publishing software, and we're going to hear from Macworld.com senior editor Peter Cohen, who was on the scene in New York uh, for the product announcement, and we're going to check in with him. And then we're going to close out the show with some more comments from uh, more of you guys. And I have to say I've been really impressed with the uh, quality of comments, the diversity of comments. Um, just It's really great hearing the voices of you guys out there. So uh, keep them coming, and we'll get to those in just a little bit. But first, I wanted to talk about the MacBook. I got my MacBook last week, right after the podcast, and it's just really sweet. I love it. I sold my iBook, and I'm so glad I have the new MacBook. Uh, it feels a bit lighter. It's a bit thinner. Uh, the keyboard feels really clean to use. Uh, you don't have to worry about stuff, you know, getting in there. Not only, you know, clean with dirt and stuff, but it just feels really easy. Uh, the, you know, it's not as loud, and, and I really like the keyboard. Uh, the glossy screen, I feel like the screen is really sharp. Uh, the blacks are a bit, bit darker and the whites are a bit brighter. Um, and, and I really like this screen over, over my previous one. Uh, there was been some complaining about some of concerns about how it's glossy, how, you know, you get reflection at various angles. And yeah, I think that's true, but you're really not going to be viewing your Mac from a 85 degree angle. Um, so that's not really something that I think most people need to worry about. Uh, but if it bothers you for whatever reason, then, well, you know, you're out of luck. Uh, but I really like it, and I, and I think it's great. I've also been pleasantly surprised at how many universal binary applications there are out there. Uh, BBEdit is universal binary. My favorite instant messenger client called Fire is universal binary. Thunderbird is universal binary. Firefox as well as, of course, all of the Apple apps, iCal, iTunes, iSync, um, GarageBand, iMovie, iWeb, all of those things are all universal binary, and they just work beautifully. And even stuff that's not universal binary, for example, Microsoft Word, which I use, it works just like regular Word. It's a little bit slower, yeah, but still totally usable. Uh, and you don't have to wait, you know, as... With Classic, when, you know, back in the days when we used Classic, you don't have to wait for Rosetta to boot or anything. It just works. It just works. And you don't need to worry about it, and that's how it should be. And uh, I'm really happy with it. 
So uh, we've got all the full. We've got a full review, a first look, various blog entries, all that stuff available at MacWorld.com. So make sure you check that out when you get home in front of your computer. Um, that'll be linked in the show notes, of course. So uh, yeah, that's all all really great. And we've got perspectives from various staffers, uh, Jason Snell, myself, and Rob Griffiths, and all, all kinds of folks. So you're going to hear a wide variety of perspectives on the MacBook. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy with mine. So. Would love to hear from more of you uh, and your experiences of the MacBook um, if you if you guys get one. Anyway, um, enough of that. Now we're going to get to the real heart of the show. Uh, our first segment is there was an announcement earlier this week involving Nike and Apple, and we're going to check in with senior editor Dan Frakes of MacWorld and also of Playlist to talk about what this means for Apple and what this deal is all about. I'm here with Dan Frakes of PlaylistMag.com to talk about the Nike Plus iPod Sport Kit. This was announced earlier this week, and it's a new product that integrates the iPod with Nike running shoes. Dan, tell us about it. Well, uh, we haven't seen one in person yet, but what it does is that if you've got a certain uh, Nike Sport running shoes, um, there's a certain line that it works with, you get a small sensor that fits into the bed of the shoe, and then that sensor has a transmitter. You also put a little uh, receiver onto the bottom of your iPod Nano, and then what happens is the sensor and the Nano talk to each other. So as you're running, as you're doing your workout, the sensor monitors your pace, your time, your distance, the calories burned, information like that, sends it directly to the iPod, which then um, can not only st- not only stores it on the iPod, but also gives you live feedback during your workout. Uh, for example, your headphones will will tell you, you know, you've been running this long or your pace is this much. Uh, and then when you get home and uh, sync your iPod with your with iTunes, a new version of iTunes that's to be released will uh, compile that data and let you see on the screen status about your workout, you know how much you run every day, what your typical speed is, things like that. And so it's sort of a way to uh, use your iPod in a, as a training tool. Who is this product being marketed towards? Well, if you look at the the, the press release that was out came out today. Uh, with Lance Armstrong and a few other athletes, it looks like it's really being uh, uh, pitched towards serious athletes. But at the same time, if you go to the website, uh, Nike, they, they talk about, you know, just your, your typical everyday person. But it's more for people who are doing serious training, I think. Although it does have some kind of cool features. For example, if you're running and you're getting near the end of your workout, uh, as the press release made the sound, you can press a button, or not the press release, excuse me, but the uh, Nike website, you can press a button and your favorite sort of pumping song will come on to let you finish your workout in a, in a, in a rush. Uh, but I think it's, it's really for people who take their workout seriously, who need you know, uh, detailed information about time, pace, things like that. What does this say about the iPod and about iPod accessories moving into the sort of domain of athletic shoes and athletic wear and out of the domain of or I guess in a different domain compared to regular audio equipment and other types of accessories. Well, not even just just workout uh, the workout domain, but it looks like Apple is really trying to extend what the iPod can do. They're working with other vendors to say, what could we, how else could we integrate this into your lifestyle? Whether it's your running or or you know, during work or whatever, they're trying to figure out how they can make the iPod even more ubiquitous and, and more pervasive in terms of what aspects of your life it's it's being used in. Um, and and with Ni- the Nike relationship, in addition to this Nike Plus iPod um, sport kit, Nike's also releasing more products that are iPod-oriented. For example, they have 
um, new shirts coming out that have uh, workout shirts that have nano pockets built into them. And they already have some sport cases like armbands and stuff. But uh, it looks like Apple's really trying to build more and more of these partnerships to make it more and more difficult for other companies to, to um, get into the market. Now, you're talking about the Nike shirt. Would that have the actual iPod controls directly on the shirt? No, it, at least from the ones that they showed on the website uh, and, and talked about, they're not like the um, Alexan or the Kyona uh, clothes that have the built-in or the um, Burton jackets that have the controls built-in. They're more like uh, the Nike's dry fit. You know, there's really thin workout clothes, but they have a dedicated slot to put the iPod in and that lets you control the iPod Nano through the shirt itself. So it's more of a pouch or a workout uh, place to store it during your workout. And one one thing that I think we should just make clear for the listeners is that this on, this new sport kit only works with a certain pair of Nike running shoes. Right. There's a line, and I don't remember off the top of my head what that line is, but there's a line of Nike running shoes that are specifically tailored towards these these kind of products. So you have to have one of those pairs of shoes, which takes the price from $29, which is what the sport kit itself sells for, really up to you know well over $100 because you need to buy the shoes as well. And probably it's unlikely that, you know, New Balance or Reebok or any of the other sports will make it compatible with that that thing. Yeah, I, I'm sure this is something Nike's patented heavily and won't let anyone else use. So, uh, and and it, it, because the sensor has to fit inside the shoe, uh, as I understand it, you you have to have shoes that are specifically made to accept it. It's not like you can just throw it in the bottom of any shoe underneath the insole. Great. Well, uh, when you get one reviewed up on Playlist Mag. Let us know. All right. Thanks, Ruth. Thank you. That was Dan Frake, senior editor of Macworld and also of Playlist. Now we're going to hear from our listeners. Uh, as you probably remember, a couple of shows back, we had some listener comments. I'm proud to play some more comments for you. I've been soliciting people to contribute, and we've got some prizes for you. So if you hear your comment on the show, I will email you, and uh, you'll get your pick of the prize. So without further ado... Here is the first round of comments. Hey, Saroos. My name is Corey Hearn. I'm 12 years old and live in Anchorage, Alaska. I just wanted to quickly compliment you on your show. I think it's great. And probably my favorite Macworld podcast was when you had your Eddie Award winners come up. And probably my next favorite was talking about boot camp. I really enjoy that. And so I just wanted to ask Chris Breen a quick little question. And that was regarding the stopwatch on my iPod Nano. And can I copy those little stopwatch files over to my Macintosh so that I can look at them later? And if something happens to my iPod, I can sort of have a backup. So thanks for everything. Love the show. Bye-bye. Hi, Corey. It's Chris Breen. Thanks very much for the question. I'm afraid that the answer is no. If you were to take a utilities such as Tinkertool and make invisible files visible and plugged in your iPod, you'd see that at the root level of your iPod, there's a folder called iPod Control. Open that up and inside you'll find a device folder. Open that up and inside you'll find a file called Timer. My very best guess is that this Timer file contains the saved stopwatch timing. Unfortunately, you can't do anything with this file. If you drag it over to a text editor, it will open up, but inside is just code. It's just nonsense. Nothing you can do with it. 
The hope here is that some enterprising shareware author will find a way to convert that code into something that's readable and then be able to copy it to a text file or put it in a spreadsheet, for example. But for the time being, no, there's not really anything you can do. We're just going to cross our fingers and hope that somebody will figure this out. Thanks again for the question. Hey, Sarus. Franz from Ontario, Canada here. I just wanted to say how much I like your macro podcast. I always look forward to the discussion of tips and tricks for OS X and the small apps that make a big difference. I have a question for any one of the macro letters who would be able to answer it. What are some good free file transfer applications for OS X? I've used Fetch from Fetch Softworks, but it only comes with a 15-day free trial. If anyone could answer this, then it would be greatly appreciated. Bye now. Hey, friends, this is Dan Frakes. Thanks for your question. By file transfer applications, I'm assuming you mean FTP clients. If so, I'm actually a big fan of Transmit, which isn't free, but I think that if you do a lot of FTP work, Transmit is well worth it. But if you're looking for something in the free domain, uh, Cyberduck is a good option. It's an open source application. Uh, it's got a good interface. It supports FTP and SFTP, and it's really hard to beat for the price. Hi, my name's Josie. I'm from Melbourne in Australia. Um, I've only been a Mac user for about four months, but I'm really loving the experience so far, and I'm really loving listening to your podcast as well. Anyway, um, something I've noticed being a switcher is that Macs do pretty much everything, or everything important, in my opinion anyway, that um, Windows and Linux machines do, but there's some things that only Macs do. Um, my favourite is the application Quicksilver. I think that's just really good and it makes using a Mac that much easier. And there's also stuff about the operating system OS X, like stuff about how the, the menu bar's at the top and then the application got, runs in Windows instead of having the application taking up the entire screen, um, which is really useful when using stuff like um, Microsoft Office and stuff. Anyway, my question is, what do you think the best Mac-only feature is, whether it's something about the software you can get that's just for Mac or something about the operating system, or something about the hardware that Macs do and nothing else does. Anyway, I love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Thanks very much. My name's Rob Griffiths, and I'm the founder of macosxhints.com and a senior editor at Macworld. You ask an interesting question, and one that, quite honestly, can't be answered in a two-minute reply, and I could probably think of a hundred things I'd like to talk about. Um, but one in particular that really stands out to me, although subtle, is the difference in the way menus behave between Windows and Linux and Macintosh. Uh, on the Mac, it, it's hard to describe, but the menus just feel smoother and more integrated. And I think it has to do with the fact that the menus don't pop into existence. They sort of subtly fade in and fade out, but it happens quickly enough that you're not delayed while the activity happens. Uh, if I contrast that to the way Windows used to work and currently works, uh, in older versions of Windows, I had a lot of trouble with the submenus. That is, if you had a menu that had another menu slide out of the right, when I tried to mouse over to the right, I would always lose the submenu. In recent versions of Windows, they fixed that, but the way they fixed it is almost as annoying. Now, when you reach a menu that has a submenu, you have to hover over it for about a second, and then the submenu will appear, and it will stay on screen until you mouse into the submenu and choose your option. So while it's impossible to lose it, my uh, workflow feels much less natural because I have to slide down to a menu, wait for the submenu to appear, then pick the submenu. On the Mac, the submenus appear nearly instantly, and because of the algorithm that Apple's engineers have used, as you move the mouse over towards the submenu, you're given sort of a buffer zone where the submenu won't vanish. So you can be a little sloppy as you move the mouse over, and the submenu will still be there. And just in general, as you move across each of the menus, if you compare the way they appear and disappear and change from one to the next on the Mac versus Windows 
Windows and Linux, it just feels much more natural on the Mac. That's one of the things I really like about it when I come back to OS X after using either of the other operating systems. Thanks again for the question. Hello, Saruz. I'm Demelza Sato. I reside in Tokyo, Japan. I always enjoy listening to your podcasts on the commuter train. I like your show because it is very different from other Mac-related podcasts that I listen to. My only request is that you do shows more frequently. Okay, that was my comment, and here's my question. We all know that Mac's ideal for people to create art, record music, edit video, and pursue other artistic endeavors. But what about the others who just want to surf the web, email, listen to music, watch movies, and not that much more? For those people, how would you justify forking over extra cost of purchasing a Mac versus a non-Mac? Or are Macs just for the artsy-fartsy types and the wealthy folks? After all, non-Macs are capable of doing pretty much everything that one would want a computer to do. What is your take on it? Thanks. Before we continue with the show, I'm going to answer a question that came in from Tokyo, Japan, from Demelza Sato. Uh, Demelza, let me say, that's a really interesting name. I've never heard that name before. Uh, I'd be curious as to the origins. But anyway, um, you were asking about why somebody would pay more for a Mac versus a PC. Well, um, I'm going to put up a link in the show notes, but you'll see in some, in many cases... Um, apples aren't always the most expensive. For example, if you were to do a real side-by-side comparison, as our own Dan Miller has done on Macworld.com, for a comparable machine with all the same types of software and RAM and processor and all of that stuff, you'll see that actually, you know, they're comparable. Yeah, maybe apples might be a little bit more expensive, but they're definitely comparable to what's out there. I think where there's a lot of misconception is that you can get a cheaper laptop or a cheaper desktop compared to what Apple sells. Yeah, that's true. However, you have to compare as to what you're getting. You might not be getting as big of a hard drive. You might not be getting as good of a processor. And if you don't need it, well, then, you know, that's okay. But, uh, you know, if you want the real um, solid stuff from Apple, yeah, you're going to have to pay a little bit more. Also, I wanted to point out that I think a really compelling argument for why people would want a Mac and why they would be willing to pay extra um, beyond the reasons of design, beyond the reasons of, you know, compatibility now with Windows and Boot Camp and Parallels and all of those different types of solutions are is the simple fact that Apple is pretty much, I don't want to say immune, but it's less prone to malware, spyware, viruses, worms, all of that kind of stuff. It just... It, I mean, it exists, but it basically doesn't. I mean, you know, there's been every now and again, there's, you know, worries of a worm. There was the Leap A thing a couple months back. But for the most part, you know, I don't know any Mac user here at Macworld or anywhere else uh, that runs, you know, virus software. That doesn't mean that it couldn't help you. That doesn't mean that, you know, you shouldn't be careful with the kinds of files that you open and stuff. But the fact of the matter is, is that the people who are writing this kind of malicious code aren't doing it for Mac. Might that change in the future? Sure. Will Apple's popular will Apple's popularity make the Mac platform a bigger target in the future? Possibly. But you know, right now, I think there's a compelling argument to be made that due to the way that Mac OS is designed and due to the way that Windows is designed, that Mac OS is a lot less susceptible to these types of attacks. And so you as a computer user can sort of operate with ease on the internet and so on. Uh, and not have to worry about, uh, you know, those types of programs. So I think that's a real big advantage uh, in Apple's court. Uh, 
Now we're going to uh, switch gears from the comments. I told you we had two sections of comments. We'll get to the to the second one a little bit later. Um, but now we're going to check in with our own senior editor of Macworld.com, Peter Cohen, uh, who was at the Quark event in New York earlier this week to check out the new version of Quark Express, version 7. Um, and he's going to tell us about how this differs from the previous version and you know, what their plans are for universal binaries and all that stuff. So here's Peter Cohen talking about Quark Express 7. All right, I'm here with senior editor of Mackerel.com, Peter Cohen. Uh, Peter was down in New York for the launch of Quark Express version 7 that happened earlier this week. And Peter, you were down there uh, chatting with these folks about Quark. Um, did they offer any explanation as to why this uh, delay took so long for this new version? Well, the new version's been in development for quite some time, and um, I'm not sure that, that there was really a delay. There was a very extensive uh, public uh, uh, beta test or shakedown of the software, and uh, when they felt it was ready to go, they released it. So it's it's now available. One of the interesting things about the release is that they, they were really extending the retail reach uh, a lot more. You know, in the past, Quark has kind of wanted to keep all the cards to itself and and uh, uh, make people uh, upgrade um, through them. But uh, you know, they've they've uh, they've opened it up. Uh, you're going to be able to find this on the store of uh, Apple retail stores, for example. I mean, on the shelves of Apple retail stores, uh, major. Uh, Mail order places like CDW and and PC Mac Mall, so uh, they're they're really trying to get it out there. They've also lowered the price. What sort of direct things have has Quark done to come head to head with Adobe InDesign, which has you know been sort of an up and comer for the last couple of years, and has really made some inroads into what traditionally has been Quark's territory? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, of of any. Uh, um, uh, software that we're seeing on the market today for uh, the desktop publishing or graphic design space. I think Quark and InDesign seem to have some of the most uh, heated debates among professionals who actually use the software outside of maybe Final Cut Pro and Avid. Um, the interesting thing is that uh, Quark has really tried to integrate as much as possible with Photoshop, which a lot of page layout uh, pros, uh, you know, use um, uh, as much, if not more, than they use Quark. So, um, Quark uh, is uh, Quark Express uh, Seven uh, provides uh, a lot more functionality to people who need to do, oh, l- let's say, basic editing tasks uh, like uh, adjusting layers or adjusting hue, saturation, uh, even applying basic filters. You can all do that stuff inside of Quark Express now instead of having to go back to Photoshop, tweak it, and then bring it in again. So they've done a much better job of, of integrating that. And that's important because InDesign, of course, is part of Adobe's creative suite, which includes Photoshop and other applications. So the more integration that uh, that Quark Express 7 has with Photoshop, I think the better off uh, they'll be in the long run. Now, this new version of Quark Express 7 is going to be first available in PowerPC and I guess the universal binary will come later. Um, given that, you know, Apple's mostly transitioned already to the new Intel line, uh, did they explain, you know, why this delay was taking place? Are there a hardcore number of people who are still sticking with the PowerPC that need that? What, what's the, what's the story there? Well, yeah, absolutely. I think that if you go to any professional, uh, marketplace where, um, uh, Macintoshes are being used, you're going to find that a lot of uh, uh, users haven't migrated to the PowerPC, I mean the Intel-based Macs yet. I mean, obviously a lot have, but many haven't as well. 
So, um, uh, you know, people in the publishing industry tend to be a little conservative. They tend not to want to jump right away until there's a lot of software available. And, of course, Adobe's dragging its feet with, you know, Creative Suite for uh, Intel-based Macs and the other key applications that really need to come over to Intel-based Macs as well. Um, Quark uh, committed to doing a uh, an Intel version of Express almost immediately, but, of course, they were already very far along in their development schedule for Quark Express 7 at that point as well. So they got it into their roadmap as soon as they could, uh, but it took a little bit longer for them to actually get the uh, um, the finished product out. It's actually in beta testing right now. It's in public beta testing. Um, people can download the uh, uh, the Intel binary from, uh, from Quark's website, and anybody who buys 7 now can use it on an Intel-based Mac. It'll run in Rosetta, and they'll get a free update to Quark 7 for uh, universal binaries uh, when it comes out later this summer. Did you get a chance to use the new version while you were down there in New York? Yeah, a little bit. They had a lot of uh, Intel-based Macs set up in a hands-on area with Quark 7 uh, installed, and, and Quark personnel were actually offering hands-on demonstrations of the new features, so I did get to mess around with it a little bit. It's quite fast on Intel-based Macs. The version that they were showing at that event in New York City is actually a beta version of the Intel-based Quark Express 7, so it's optimized for those machines and and runs uh, very nicely. Great. Well, uh, Peter Cohen, we appreciate your taking the time to be on the podcast. Oh, no problem. Thank you very much for having me, Soros. That was Peter Cohen, Senior Editor of Macworld.com. Now we're going to Jump into our second and final portion of the comments. And if you like the ones from before, I think you'll like this round as well. Hey, Sarus. This is Roland from New Jersey. I just wanted to tell you about, like, my happy experience switching to a Mac. Um, in the 80s, I was very lucky. My parents bought me an Apple IIe to help me learn how to do programming. But, you know, when I got to college, everything was Windows-based and... It just set me down this path of my professional career where using one dull gray Windows PC after another and suffering every kind of hardware conflict and blue screen of death imaginable. And, um, you know, my wife has been always been a, a devoted Mac fan, and she always took great pride at laughing at me whenever I was having problems with my Windows machine. Um, and finally, last November, it's like I just had enough. It's like my machine died out on me one last time, and... Um, I seriously started thinking about like switching to a Mac. I bought a G4 iBook and I have been so happy. This thing changed my life. It just works. It makes my life easier. It even makes things fun. You know, I listen, I got an iPod so I can listen to all sorts of Mac and tech podcasts during my commute. Um, I, I enjoy like editing video movies together of my kids. We got an iMac for my kids. I bought a used iBook for my mom so we could get rid of her Windows 98 Pentium 2. Now I can spend time talking to her instead of troubleshooting her stupid PC every time I go to visit. I'm just happier now, and I really should have listened to my wife a lot sooner. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for the podcast. Keep up the good work. Take care. Hi, Cyrus. Uh, this is Marian from Slovakia. Um... I've been a switcher for almost a year now, and I'm quite happy with the Mac. I bought a Mac Mini, um, and I'm also a teacher of English. And since since buying my Mac Mini, I've also bought a, a 30 gigabyte iPod with a video, which I use uh, quite a lot uh, at school. 
so I'd be quite happy to uh, get the FM transmitter with a dock if you still have some. Um, my question is uh, why um, there still isn't a uh, microphone for this uh, fifth generation iPod so that I could record stuff on it. Um, thank you very much and uh, keep up the good work. Hi, Marion. It's Chris Breen. I understand your desire to have a microphone for your 5G iPod. For those of you who don't know, this iPod is the first to support CD quality uh, recording, specifically 16-bit, 44.1 kilohertz files. Previous full-size dock connector iPods can record audio as well with a compatible microphone, but at a much lower voice quality resolution. Having a mic for the new iPods would mean a lot of us could throw out our mini-disc recorders and record from our iPods. The holdup in this case is Apple. Some iPod peripherals require special chips that allow the devices to work with the iPod. Apple's iPod camera connector, for example, includes a chip that lets the device download pictures from a digital camera and display them on the iPod. So far, Apple hasn't released the chip necessary for 5G iPod microphones to work. And when it does, my guess is that you'll see more than one of these devices available for your iPod. In the meantime, I'm afraid you're just going to have to wait until Apple works it out. Hey, Sirius, this is Nathan from Australia. Just like to say, I think Macworld podcast is great. Keep up the good work. One thing I would like to see more in the podcast is tips about switching to Mac, because the majority of computers in your house are PCs, and I need a little bit of help switching over. And one more thing, my question. In one of your podcasts, you mentioned about installing all 1,000 dashboard widgets into dashboard, and I was wondering if this is possible. I know you're only joking when you said it, but I'm sort of curious to know if it really is possible. I thought it'd be pretty cool if it is. Thanks. Hi, Nathan. This is Dan Freak, Senior Editor at Macworld. Thanks for your question, and welcome to the Mac. You could launch a 1,000 widgets in dashboard. The problem is that your Mac wouldn't perform too well afterwards. For example, I was recently diagnosed in a problem with a PowerBook where I needed to tax the battery and the processor as much as possible. To do so, I launched about 300 instances of the clock dashboard widget. After doing so, my PowerBook slowed to another crawl. Because after all, widgets are applications, they use memory, and they use processor cycles just like any other application. So you're basically running a few hundred applications at a time. So the answer is yes, you could launch a thousand dashboard widgets at one time, but I'm not sure why you'd want to unless you were just trying to see how slow you could make your Mac run. Hello, this is John. I really love listening to your podcast. And um, I had a question about the MacBook Pro. I noticed on Apple's website that with the 17-inch MacBook Pro, the drive on it is a super drive with um, double layer support and at uh, eight times speed. And um, I noticed also that the 17-inch is the same thickness as the 15-inch. So I wonder if this means that... Um, you th- do you think that they're going to put... Uh, Eight times dual layer drives in the 15 inch MacBook Pros. Uh, thanks. Uh, bye. This is Jason Snell, editorial director of Macworld. Uh, good question. We actually have both models, the 15 and the 17, in the office, and I, I took a look at both of them. And one of the interesting differences is the 17 inch actually. Um, the 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 optical drive slot is in a slightly different position. It's actually a little higher up. Um, almost right at the top at the keyboard level. And on the MacBook Pro 15-inch, it's a little bit lower. And so what this suggests to me is that they have been engineered differently, um, which means doesn't mean that there won't be a dual-layer drive in the 15-inch. I think from my conversations with Apple when it came out, they indicated that they were hoping to do it 
once they got a drive that was small enough to fit. Um, but it may be that the 15-inch MacBook has to be slightly altered to use the drive that's in the 17. I realize that they're, they're the same thickness, but um, the configuration is definitely a little bit different, and I wonder if the the reason the 17 is a little different is so that they could get a dual-layer drive to fit. So to answer your question, I think it'll happen. It may not be as easy as just dropping in the drive that's in the 17-inch MacBook Pro. It, it, it may be that they'll have to wait for a, a slightly bigger rev of the 15-inch uh, before it gets in there or until a really super slim dual-layer um, dual-layer burner goes in there. So, you know, I would say hang on tight. It'll happen eventually, uh, but it might not be just as easy as flipping a switch and building it with the dual-layer drives because there, there does seem to be an architectural difference between the two models. Hello, uh, this is Ryu from Singapore. Um, I'm actually from the Mac user group from the National University of Singapore. And right now, we're actually thinking of starting our own podcast channels. So, just wondering if you have some tips for us. Yep, thanks a lot, and keep up the good work. Thank you. Well, that about wraps up the show. Show number 40, the big 4-0 for us. Uh, and I wanted to address that question that you heard at the end of the comments section from Ryu in Singapore. Uh, you were asking about tips for podcasting. Well, I would tell you that the first place to look is on Macworld.com. I have written an article about how to create an audio podcast as well as a video podcast. We've got lots of reviews and suggestions for types of gear that you can use. Um, so I would say check that out and get a lay of the land. Figure out what kind of budget you're operating on. Um, you know, I'm not operating on the most expensive equipment. You know, it's uh, my setup. You know, just the microphone, headphones, and recorder alone are probably, uh, you know, 700 American dollars at least. So you're going to have to figure out how much money you're going to be willing to put into this. And as you sort of get into it more, uh, maybe you might get a bigger budget, bigger listenership, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but so, you know, think about that and then that can sort of determine what is available to you. But above all, I would say the biggest tip that I can give to any podcaster, be it, you know, if you want to do a Mac podcast or podcast about something completely different, um, just like for blogging, just like for doing anything that's a hobby, do it for fun, you know, and, and don't worry about making money. Don't worry about how many people are going to listen to it. Don't worry about, you know, if, uh, you know, it sounds as professional as some of the other podcasts out there. Do it because you love it. And, you know, and over time, you'll figure out what works, what doesn't work, how to get better, um, and so on. If you go back and you listen to some of the earlier podcasts from me, from, from, if you go back and you listen to some of the earlier podcasts from Macworld that I did, you know, podcasts one, two, three, and four, I mean, they were okay, but, you know, I don't think that they sound as polished as this one. Uh, we had different music. Uh, the links were different. Um, you know, we just, over time, you just sort of learn how to get better. Um, but, you know, do it on something that you love. Uh, you guys said you were from the Mac user group in Singapore. Uh, so do it on that for Singaporeans. Um, that would be really great. I would totally listen to that, and I would love to hear uh, what Mac users in various parts of the world are are saying and doing and talking about. Um, so yeah, so, uh, when you get that up and running, please do send me a, a promo or a clip, uh, that I can play on the podcast here. And we'll of course throw up a link in our show notes and, and we'd love to, uh, you know, get a group of 
Mac podcasters worldwide together. That would be really fun. Anyway, um, so that about wraps it up for me. Uh, of course, you can always leave audio comments. Please send me more audio comments. Uh, I haven't quite given away everything yet. I've got a couple more items, so make it good. Uh, this will probably be your last chance of this round of giveaways. So please send them in A format, uh, uncompressed audio or wave. That's fine too. If you can't manage that, send MP3 or AAC. That's okay. Uh, but AFE is always good. Just email them to me. My email address is cfaravar at macworld.com. Um, if you don't want to send an audio comment, you can always send me a written comment to that same email address. Or, of course, you can leave comments in our show notes. There's a little button at the bottom that says leave a comment, and you can click there and talk in our discussion forums and all of that great stuff. And there's lots of people talking about various Mac things, and you can get involved with that. Um, of course, we've always got our new blog, Mac User, and our even newer blog, Macworld Gadget Box. Uh, and those are available at MacUser.com and Gadgets.MacWorld.com. It's a new blog uh, talking about all kinds of non-Mac gadgets, but just general technology stuff that I think a lot of you out there might be interested in. So go on, check that out. And we've got the review of Quark Express 7 up on Macworld.com. We've got the announcement about the Nike and iPod deal up on Macworld.com. All of that, all of the news is always available at MacCentral.com, and uh, we just try and keep it as fresh as we can for you out there. This podcast is coming to you a few days early, as you might have noticed. Our schedule normally would be putting this podcast next Wednesday, but I will be on vacation all of next week, uh, enjoying our long Memorial Day holiday weekend uh, here in the U.S., and so I hope that, that those of you in the U.S. who have a holiday this weekend, enjoy that, take the day off, uh, go do something fun. I will be heading up the west coast of the United States up to Vancouver uh, for a road trip, and I look forward to that. Before you hear from me, you may hear from uh, our editorial director, Jason Snell, who may step in and uh, do a podcast before I get back. So either way, I uh, hope to hear from you soon. CFARVARTMacworld.com. Please do keep the comments coming, audio, written, whatever. Um, really helpful and really helps me connect with you guys out there. I would particularly love to hear from people who are using the new MacBook. I uh, would love to hear about your experience uh, compared to mine, what you think of the glossy screen and the keyboard and all that stuff. Uh, that would be really sweet. So, yeah, that about wraps it up for me. And uh, look forward to hearing from all of you again soon. Signing off from San Francisco, this is Sarus Faravar for the Macworld Podcast.